poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. Today's guest on CPG is a man after my own heart who's always marched to the beat of his own drummer. He's a play-by-play anchor for the World Series of Poker and host of Crush Live Poker's podcast, Under the Gun, the one and only David Tuckman. If there's a sport people play in the world, there's a good chance Tuck's covered it. From the NFL to NASCAR to poker, while bouncing around from New York to LA to London, the man has seen and covered it all. In today's very special episode with Tuck, we're going to dive deep into how he stumbled into the world of poker and how his background in theater and journalism uniquely positioned him to take advantage of an incredible early opportunity, hosting and commenting live at the bike from the very start. You're going to learn about Tuck's professional hockey aspirations and what it was like being a prop player at the bike in the good old days with one of his best friends in the world, former CPG guest, the founder of CrushLivePoker.com, Bart Hansen. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you the host of Under the Gun and founder of TuckOnSports.com, the one and only David Tuckman. Mr. Tuckman, how are you, sir? I am good. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Doing quite well. Just expressing the FOMO that I have for missing out on the WSOP this year and feeling a little bit excitement to get there next year. Yeah, I, I, uh, I haven't missed a World Series in quite some time. I want to say that I have not missed a World Series in its entirety in probably like 14 years. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I, I don't really miss it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I right. haven't ever missed it, but this is the first time I'm actually missing it because uh, I, I know, you know, through the podcast, just so many people that are there, right? It's like, it's this one time where all of the people that I've met and networked with through this venture are all concentrated in like the same place, which is just kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I imagine, especially considering, you know, I mean, if you're a cash game player and you normally see these people on a regular basis, but you haven't seen them over the last 18 months because of because of the pandemic, I would imagine at least it's like, you know, even if you're not going to play tournaments, it's still a great excuse just to kind of see some people that you like. Well, I'm a shut in. So, you know, I'm a shut in and an anonymous cash game player. So like before I started the podcast, like two years ago, I didn't know tons of people in the poker world and I shamefully ignorant of all tournament players and results. I did not keep up with anything over the past decade. And then through, you know, close to 200 episodes, I've just met so many people and made so many connections and done so many interviews and had conversations like this that, yeah, now, now I know a lot of people. I didn't know a lot of people two years ago and now there's just like tons of people that I know that are all milling around in the same same spot. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you're. By the way, you're no longer anonymous. I I I guess I know that kind yeah. of. 
halfway. Yeah. I haven't gone anywhere. That's the thing. I just have a conversation with one person, then I release it into the world, and then that's it. So <laughs> I haven't actually yeah. gone to play poker because of the pandemic, really. I, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah, but you're still not anonymous. I mean, people know who you are now, at least, which is, you know. Uh, yeah, I tell my kids, you know, I'm trying to be the most famous Brad Wilson. Like, if I can, if I can knock that out, then achievement achievement unlocked there's there's actually a lot of high achieving brad wilson's out in the world more so i was than gonna say i was gonna say like that's gotta be hard because brad wilson i mean that's like joe i mean that's a fairly common name wilson first of all mm. very common last name and then brad is not i mean don't take it the wrong way but we're not you know we're not breaking boundaries with your first <laughs> name either um you know apparently i i've quickly googled so um there's a a brad guitar wilson songwriter from california that's not you no. uh, there's a politician not you there's a photographer not you there's a lot of brad wilson's i think i mean i will tell you that you becoming the most famous brad wilson is far more difficult than most people like certainly more difficult than me being the most famous david tuckman <laughs> <laughs> yeah not a ton of david tuckman's you you have the front page when i when i was doing my research for this this conversation you got the front page locked down like i'm firmly on page two, um, need to get my SEO guys to work on ranking me up in the Google searches. Or you can just change your name. Oh, I could. Yeah. Maybe brain fuel Wilson. What about that? Yeah, I think we could do, <laughs> I mean, on the fly, that's not bad, but I think we can do better. <laughs> if I'm going to change my name, I, I at least want to get paid. Um, yeah, you should get paid if you're going to change your name. You're right. It's, that's a good point. Well, well, well you know, we'll, uh, we can brainstorm. Yeah, and we'll, we can we'll, come up with something really, really good. I mean, listen, there is a Brad Guitar Wilson. <laughs> that's their middle name, Guitar. That's what he's called. It's it's a homepage of Brad Guitar Wilson, a songwriter, artist from California. Brad Wilson has a soulful, contemporary sound. I mean, I just feel like that's kind of dumb. Like, if you are a songwriter, you don't need to, like. I mean, if you're any good, you don't need to make your middle name Guitar. <laughs> like, you're not gonna, you know what I mean? You wouldn't like, you know, you're not gonna see like. You know, Peyton Football Manning. <laughs> yeah. Brad Chiprack Wilson. Yeah. Just like, I don't know. Be more, be more creative than that. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Well, let's, let's get, let's circle back to you. Yes. Let's talk about, you know, typically starting out this show, first time guest. I want to know your story of how you entered the world of poker. What's that look like? Uh, you know, I always played my, my dad played and my grandparents played. And I remember my dad playing when I was a little kid. Um, he would play, you know, they would have poker night and I love poker night because poker night meant my mom met, made a lot of snack, got a lot of snacks. And my dad would let me sit there and watch and I'd watch them play and everything. And then I was right away. I was intrigued like, Oh, here's a fun game. Money is being changed and there's snacks. So this is awesome. <laughs> and then I remember we used to go away every Christmas, uh, and new year's we'd go away to this like um very uh dirty dancing-esque type resort what do, what do you mean by that dirty dancing-esque like the like you know like the cat skills like dirty like you know like the resort and dirty dancing was kind of you, you see uh I, i'm older but dirty dancing is just maybe five years past me uh, yeah, I know, but I mean, there's there's like 21 year old girls who know Dirty Dancing is anyway the movie Dirty Dancing. <laughs> I'm not a 21 year old girl though. That's a problem. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. Okay, so you're not a 21 year old girl. Nobody and... puts baby in the corner. That's what I know about Dirty Dancing. Okay, so you, you okay, so it's iconic enough that you know a quote from it. I anyway, do. I do. There's a um, Dirty Dancing is obviously it's a it's a movie. Many of you probably know it. It's 
there's a kind of a, a resort there. It's a summer resort, but those places also have winter resorts. And it was up in the Catskills, which is like two hours north of New York City. And we would go there. I would play a hockey tournament. And then after that, we'd spend New Year's there. And my dad would play poker. And next to the poker room, there was an arcade. And all the dads would give their kids a roll of quarters, $10 roll of quarters, and go, okay, go play video games. This is at night. So we can. So basically, here's a $10 roll of quarters. Leave me the fuck alone, kid. Can I say that word on this? Oh, yeah, you can. Okay. Uh, you know, leave me alone. Go do that. We're playing poker. Well, I wanted to sit and watch because, I mean, I, I think at the time I had no idea what my dad was playing. But looking back and now knowing, my dad was probably playing 10, 20 stud. Yeah. And, you know, with his buddies, because I saw $10 bills and $20 bills. So that makes sense. They always put cash, though. It was just cash, <laughs> which is pretty crazy when I think about it. Mm-hmm. And I was just enthralled by the game. To the point where I convinced the other kids to start playing poker with me with their roll of quarters. <laughs> so you, you started like a, a little micro game. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I never needed another quarter again because I just kept winning. I was like, <laughs> I watched my dad. I was like, oh, if I don't play every single hand and I just play some of the better ones, I'm probably going to win. Anyway, that kind of morphed into me playing, you know, poker with my buddies and playing home games with like my high school friends and stuff like that. And, you know, when I first started playing it wasn't Hold'em. It was, you know, we played all sorts of weird games like Chicago and Black Mariah and Follow the Queen and you name it. We just invent games. And what, in fact, I, what, so what's, the, what's the timeline here? Like, what year is this? Uh, man, like this is probably um, like 1990-ish. Okay, 1990. Yeah, right around there. Yeah, so um, no, no, no Hold'em boom. No, this is like... This is, Way far this, back. This is before yeah. Rounders... Mm-hmm. This before Rounders, before Chris Moneymaker, all that stuff. But I do remember, you know, playing in the early 90s with my buddies and somebody kind of introducing games where we had a community board, like a shared board, like we do it obviously in PLO and, and hold them now. And I remember that was like, I was like, wait, so we're all kind of confused by it. Like, I'm like, so you're giving me cards, you get your cards and we all share these cards in the middle. That seems weird. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we started playing those kind of games and we just kind of played with that. Like they, they would make shapes and be like, oh, well, you can use two from this, two from this line and one from this line or one from this line and two from this line, but not three from one line. You know, and it would just, we'd play all these weird different games with that. And that was kind of how I got my poker go. And like in college, I played a ton, but this is still right before the internet really took off. And it was right before the internet really took off. And it was before online poker was a thing. It was before rounders. So even then, I would play like heads up with the guy across my hall. We would just play heads up like draw poker, mm-hmm. five card draw. And I remember, you know, winning a lot of money for college kids. Yeah. You know, Weird. I just, I was, I was naturally just pretty good at it. Where so do you think I, that comes from, the naturally being pretty good at, at it? I mean, just. Did you think about the strategy away from the game? Like, how did you think about poker? I would say it's kind of threefold. Number one, yeah, I'm, I'm ridiculously anal. So if there's a game that I was playing, I would literally spend hours devising a plan on how to play it. So there was a game that I grew up playing called Axis and Allies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, know if you know it. I do, I do. Okay, so I would literally take a pad of paper and write out strategies for each country 
you know, and like, okay, what would be, what's an ideal strategy if you're Japan? What's an ideal strategy if you're Russia? So forth and so on. And I would, and I just wanted to be good at these games. So I always tried to think like, okay, what would I do to do, you know, to, for that? Um, so I think that was, you know, first off, that was kind of my, in, in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Same. And, yep. and I'm really competitive. So that was part of it. And I wanted to win. So like if we played, I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I, I don't, I, I want to do that. Um, I was always good at math. I was really, really good at math from an early age. Um, I didn't have to study at all. And I would take like, you know, the math test for math, like the state regencies. And I was scoring 99% tile. Um, so that's part of it. And then I think something that as I've gotten older, but it probably was there when I was younger as well as I think I have a really good ability to read the room and to understand how people perceive me, which I think lends to why I'm probably a far better live poker player than I am online. What's the, the major benefit of understanding how people perceive you? Um, I mean, away from the poker table, I think it's huge just because, you know, you get a sense of, you know, when you're annoying somebody, when you should shut up, um, you know, where you are. You know, if a, if a girl is flirting with you when I was single, it was like, okay, you just get a sense of like how they feel toward you. Um, at the poker player, I think, as, I think it's invaluable because if you understand, I think too many poker players make the mistake of thinking, this is my image. I haven't played a hand all night, so my image is squeaky tight. Like I read these forms and they're like, okay, well, uh, image is this. And I never thought it was that simple because I feel like your image might be that to, that player, but what's your image to like to that player over there or to the woman in seat two, you know, how does each person think about you? Mm -hmm. And as I played and I kind of realized, I was like, wow, I'm playing in some players. Like I, I literally played in one session where one guy thought I was a complete lag. And one guy was thinking about folding the top of his range because he was like, fuck talk. You're, if you weren't such a nit, I would never, I would never even think about making this fold. And I was like, wow, okay, hold on a second. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm not different, but I have players thinking about me in different ways. Sure. So yeah. for me, I was always a matter of like, if I understand how somebody perceives me, then I can exploit that. Yeah. And it's very natural too, because I think that say you run good against someone, right? Like over the course of an hour and you like, three or four bet them three or four times. Like they're going to get emotionally compromised. Most likely they're going to get frustrated and then they're going to make a story as to why they're feeling so frustrated. And that story is going to be that you're running over them. Right. Whereas a player, you know, three to your left, you haven't three bet them all night. And then you three bet them and they're like, Whoa, this dude's really tight. Right. It's just like, it's, it's a matter of, what each individual person is experiencing at the poker table and then, you know, understanding, yeah, understanding how they think of you and how that affects what your strategy ought to be against those specific players. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up and watching like, um, like Harrington and wondering, you know, how did this guy make like, you know, how did he win the championship? How did he make back-to-back -back final tables? And you start realizing you're like, wow, he just, he has a really, amazing understanding of how he is perceived and he's able to exploit it. Not mm. a lot, but every once in a while he, he does that. Um, I remember playing a, a silly heads up match. Bart Hansen and I uh, did a, 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 a heads up match for Joe Seabock and Gavin Smith. And at the time, you know, I knew Gavin, but Gavin is this, you know, gregarious, loud, 
drinking poker player. And I thought, okay, well, he's going to be this crazy lag, right? And he was the furthest thing from it. I mean, he's a complete nit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by the time I kind of realized that. It's too late. <laughs> it was, yeah, I was already, yeah, it was already a three to one chip deficit. To him. Yeah. Um, so I think it's something that was always kind of part of who I am. And I think as I've gotten older, I've just been able to use it more. Yeah. And I think, I think at the poker table, like I said, I think at the poker table, it's really invaluable. I remember playing the main event many years ago and I was sitting at a table with like Antonio Esfandiari. And at this point, I think I was, especially when at the world series of poker, I was more the the commentator guy and less the cash game player. So I was getting some like cold four bets through in spots that I was like, wow, these are just, and I I remember talking about it. I was like, this just keeps working. Why does this keep working? It's amazing. (laughs) You know, but Mm -hmm. then I go back to LA and, you know, I had to completely change my game against certain players because in LA I was, you know, I was known as a cash game player and, you know, I, I was certainly wasn't the tightest player at the table. Sure. And I think there's also, we want to, I think human beings want to apply like rigid labels to other humans and say like, Oh, this is my image because I have folded 30 hands in a row. Everyone thinks that I am tight. Like it's that robotic. And there, I, I found, and uh, I recently listened to a podcast. It was a Sam Harris on, it was on nonverbal communication. I can't remember who the guest was, but basically it was about how we pick things up subconsciously through body movement and how it's like very reliable. Like if you're explaining directions to someone, you use your hands to express and show people and point. And, and like most people read the body more than they actually read the words that you're saying. And I found that like there are players that play like super nits for like two hours. And then all of a sudden I'm in a pot against them. And it's like, I just know, I know that they're going to go off and just like a rocket. And and there's no reason for me to know that other than I just feel it. And then they do. And my, the only conclusion that I'm able to come to is that subconsciously I'm reading some, uh, nonverbal data points that, you know, are pinging my brain that are like, yeah, this guy's about to go off for whatever reason, you know, and sometimes it's just, it seems like it's just out of the blue. They just blow up. I I don't, it's hard to describe. And yet it's happened to me hundreds of times. Yeah. I've talked about this on my own podcast a million times where, you know, let's say I'm, I'm raising a ton in the cutoff with a button and I just keep attacking somebody's blind and you can just feel it. It is this kind of palpable thing where you can feel at some point they're going to explode and they're going to be like, nope, that's it. You cross the line and they're going to try to make a stand. And I love that, you know, because that's one of these points like, yeah, okay. So if they time it right, yeah, they'll get me, they'll catch me. But when they time it wrong, I'm going to catch them and it's going to be a lot worse for them. Yeah. Um, Then they walk away from the table going like, how did you call me down? How did you do that? Like, I haven't done anything in four hours. <laughs> right. you're just, uh, I don't know. I just felt like you didn't have it that time. Yeah, I, I got lucky. I, I just got lucky. I mean, you know me, I'm a fish. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think what you said in terms of, you know, nonverbal cues and body language, I, I have six pets and two kids. And I think it's more apparent now that I've ever, now that I've, cause I see it. The, when you have kids and you see how they react 
to just literally, I could, the way I turn and look at them sometimes, and suddenly my boys know I'm being serious. Mm-hmm. And you start kind of looking at that going, wow, it's, it's innate. It is in us all. And I think a lot of times people kind of, they don't open themselves up to allowing all of that information inside. They close off to it. And, and I'm with you 100%. I think there's so much that you can be given away if you allow it to. I think sometimes people take it too far and then they go, well, this is why you should always trust your first instinct. And I go, there's something to that. But I go, there's also a lot to, hey, we've put a lot of work in the game. There's nothing wrong with taking 20 seconds here and actually thinking through something and thinking through, okay, what's my range? What's my opponent's range? Uh, what does this look like? And then you can, you can couple that with the body language and your, what your subconscious might be telling you. Um, yeah. But I have, I have had many times where I'm like, I, I, I just don't believe you. I don't know why. I just don't believe you right now. Um, and I'm not always right, but I think I'm right enough where when I'm getting three or four to one, I'm certainly making profitable calls in those spots. Yeah, that, that's how, that's the beauty of the pot odds model, right? Like even if, if we're fairly certain and we're getting three to one, well, we only have to be right more than 25% of the time. And so, okay, like we can afford to be wrong quite often. Um, because pot odds kind of protects us and it's sometimes hard to discern what is like an intuitive read like that. And then also maybe what your emotions are telling you, or just, you know, you're kind of getting tricked by yourself because maybe you want to call. And so you have this confirmation bias of trying to find some reason to do it. So parsing through that can be a little bit difficult and tricky. Yeah, that's one of my biggest things. And I think for a lot of people, but for me, and I can't read, I can't speak for other people. For me, one of my biggest things is that when I do have a, a preconceived notion, when I, maybe I'm emotionally invested, when I, when I'm now I'm looking for evidence to make one side, the correct side, so to speak, I I think that's when I can run myself into trouble. What I try to do is really just kind of be like, okay, like if anything, empty my mind of everything and really be open to what I'm seeing, mm-hmm. right? Forget about the past and just kind of like, just like focus on, focus on my opponent in this absolute moment. Um, not that the past of the, my past experience with my opponent isn't relevant. It's just sometimes I do think that going off what you just said, it can cloud your, your judgment and influence your decision. For sure. And I, I think just for the listener in, making their way through the world, like understanding what confirmation bias is and the downside of it can save people lots of frustration, anxiety, save them from lots of like, you know, misinformation campaigns and all sorts of things uh, because humans just have a tendency to like, oh, I kind of get the feeling this is right. Now let's look up all the ways that this is supported on the interwebs. And then all of a sudden they spiral down into a black hole and yeah, it can get it can get a little bit messy. Yeah. Well, let's go back to your your story. So you're battling. You're in college. Um, you're you mentioned you're very competitive. So tell me about that, like being competitive growing up and what that means to you. Oh, I was just. I mean, I I always played sports. I played hockey. I played hockey in college. Uh, so no matter what game I played, I just I just wanted to win. You know, we used to play stickball, like you know, outside the school against a wall. Um, you know, why, why'd you want to win? I don't know. I don't know what, I mean, I I think my, my, my dad was competitive probably like my dad never let me win. 
Mm-hmm. So I had to actually beat him. You're going to let your kids win? You know, I think there's a, I think there's a, a healthy balance there. I think you have to let your kids. I, I don't want to let my kids win. But I also, I don't want to beat my kids into oblivion each time so they're no longer interested. Yeah. You know, um, dumb example, but I got like a, a hockey bubble game. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but it's like literally, it's like, um, it's like foosball, but hockey. Mm-hmm. It's a big bubble. It's famous. It's, it's been around forever. Anyway, um, I, I, I grew up with one. I loved it. My wife bought it for me. I, lo- I, I mean, and I'm really good at it. I played it a million times as a kid. There's zero chance my kid could beat me right now if I tried. But if I beat my kid, you know, seven, nothing every single time, he's not going to play with me. Yeah. And selfishly, I want him to play with me. <laughs> so, you know, I've got to let him, you know, so I'll play him three games and I'll beat him twice, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll let him kind of like be competitive with me. So, you know, I mean, for the, for the people out there, they're like, oh, you never let your kids win. Don't let them ever win. I'm like, if you don't let your kids win everything, they're never going to play. Like, I mean, like, I'm, like I'm, if you're teaching a four-year-old how to play chess, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to beat my kid in five moves every time. <laughs> you also, I, I think it probably creates like an unhealthy relationship to competitions, just destroying your kid every time, right? Because like winning becomes like the end all be all. I don't know. I find, okay, if you would have asked me this when I was 21 years old, no chance. I'm right. smashing every, it, it, no matter what I do, I'm never letting anybody win. I'm going to play as hard as I possibly can. I'm not going to be a dick. I'm not going to flip a table if I lose, but I'm going to try hard. Um, now at 37, I do let people win in games. And, and especially I find, I find that I let people win at things that they don't normally win at. And it means a lot to them. And that kind of gives me some sort of internal happiness as well. Just knowing how much it matters to them to beat me at some, some silly thing. Um, maybe I'm just getting soft as I, as I get older. Yeah, maybe. And I'm probably a little bit of the same way. I mean, when I was a kid, I was incredibly competitive and I wanted to win to the point where I also like competition. Like there are some board games out there, like, you know, like cards against humanity, stuff like that. Like my wife loves playing that. And I'm just kind of like, I don't know. So how do I win? She's like, well, there's no real, you don't really win. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so why are we playing? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, that, and that's a problem. I don't, I don't think that's healthy. So um, not, not, not one for Candyland, Tuckman. Right, I'll play Candyland. Candyland, you can win. What are you talking about? Well, you, you can win, but there's no skill. Like you're just drawing oh, cards that, and moving your little guy. That's fine. I can still win though. And I try to win. Oh, okay. Okay. So <laughs> it, it, we don't have to have an element of skill. You just need to be able to declare somebody the winner at the end of this thing. Right, right, right. But I guess as I'm getting older though, I'm, I, especially as I had kids, you know, there are times where you realize, okay, it, it's okay not to humiliate your opponent. It's okay to let it be competitive. Let them both have fun. And I think as you look at the, I was talking to uh, DGAF about this. And I think if you look at like the private home game scene and private game scene, I think that actually plays into it as well. You know, if you're a professional and you're being invited into these games and you're absolutely crushing your opponent, you know, it, it, it's not the worst thing in the world to give them a little bit of negative EV action and maybe throw a little bit of the money back to them. Um, it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world to, you know, let's say it's the perfect spot for a four bet or a three bet, right? It's not maybe, maybe in this particular hand, 
you, you won't do it simply because you're, you know what? I, I know these guys want to play a flop. They want to see flops. And I can't just relentlessly three bet them because I won't get invited anymore. They won't play with me. So I guess the same way, like I want my kid to play hockey ball, you know, hockey with me. So I can't just pummel them every single time. I think you can kind of probably apply that to professional poker players playing in a private home game scene where, yeah, beat them. It's okay. But, you know, let them play. Let them have fun too. Or, I mean, when you know they have a good hand and you've got like an open ender or a flush draw, like just get it in, right? Like you, you just get it in. You've got 35% equity. You're gambling with them. You're not, you're not losing all that much in the grand scheme of things. But the number one rule, if you're in good games, is to stay in the good game. And getting kicked out of the good game um, is more detrimental to your well-being than, you know, giving some action when you don't have the best of it every single time, or maybe calling it appropriately pre-flop or like just being fun to play with. I think that's ultimately people just want to gamble and they want to play against people who are willing to gamble with them. And when you do that, they'll invite you back. Like, you know what I mean? I was actually just playing racquetball with a buddy of mine. I was in Vegas, the world series and kid I went to college with. That's one of my best friends in the whole world. Uh, couldn't be prouder of him because, you know, this is a guy who he's like six foot three, six, four, and he ballooned up to like 375 pounds when he was in the midst of a divorce and he was having a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the guy just absolutely dedicated himself, got a trainer, and he's now at like 205 pounds and he's just in great shape. So we used to play racquetball when we were younger and we started playing racquetball again because we couldn't play when he was 350 pounds because I'd be worried he'd die right on the court. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, you're, I'm, I, I'm not, I know his kids and I'm like, no, dude, I'm not going to be the one to tell your kids you died while you're playing racquetball with me. Sorry. Um, but anyway, we were playing and I've always been a better athlete than him, but we're playing racquetball. And the first game I beat him 15 to four. And the second game we play and I'm like, I kind of just like, you know, I took it easy. Now I will say though, I was up like 14, 11. I, I certainly didn't let him get points, but I didn't go like balls to the wall. Okay. I'm going to beat him here. He came back and he was beating me 15, 14 and you have to win by two. And that's when I was like, no, fuck this. Now I'm not losing. And I ended up beating him 17, 15. And it was a good game. But that kind of thing where it's at least like, I mean, if I beat him every time, 15, four, that's not fun. You know? So I got my own, I got my own racquetball story. So I was messing around and like, just based on natural athletic ability, I could beat most of my friends. Right. And then one of my friends like played racquetball in college and oh. <laughs> like at, at a highish level. Right. And so I'm like, okay, let's play. Like he just like hit the ball in the fucking corner every time. Like he just beat me like 15 to nothing and I could never get the ball out of the corner. And that was the last time I played racquetball. <laughs> <laughs> that, was it, <laughs> that was the end of my racquetball experience getting drilled um, in a way that was just totally hopeless over and over and over again. Yeah, the uh, the big fish, big big fish, big fish in a little pond syndrome. I mean, I, I, same thing with chess. Like, I was a pretty good chess player. I'm decent. Like, I'm not good by any stretch. But if I'm playing somebody that doesn't play chess or just knows chess, I'm gonna crush them. Mm-hmm. But then when I started playing against people who actually like, went to chess tournaments and like were studying chess, I'm like, oh, I suck at chess. Yeah, you got no chance. I, I, right. I think it's kind of the same way. It's like, yeah, you're athletic enough that you're gonna beat all these people, but. If somebody actually plays the game, you're screwed. No, 
one, right? Yeah, you're, you're toast. I, I guess it just goes to, I guess the point of this is that you want to play people around your skill level. That's when it's the most fun. Um, it's never fun when you're just so absurdly better than somebody at something that they don't stand a chance. And the opposite is certainly not fun either. Right. But I mean, as for the competitive part of it, though, I mean, I would say that being competitive is a, is a really good thing in many ways, because I think it does fuel you, at least it did for me. Sure. You know, because I wanted to win and I realized that, well, if I want to win and if I want to do well here, I have to work. And then I started trying to figure out, okay, how do I win this game? You know, so whether it's Axis and Allies or chess or hockey or poker, it was, okay, how do I win? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would sit there and I would, I, I mean, I remember when I first started, I'd sit there with a deck of cards on a bed and I would just kind of like play hands by myself against myself just to same. see, yeah, you know? Same. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that's, it's a commonality that I think is innate in a lot of professional poker players or folks that play poker at a high level is like just some sort of inner desire to be the best you can be at something and an acceptance that you don't have the answers, but you're open to learning and you're open to growth. Um, that's to me, give me somebody like that. I can work with a human being that has those innate skill sets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, you, if, if I imagine if I gave you a student who didn't really, it probably never even played a lick of poker, but I gave, I, they had that personality. You could probably turn them into a better poker player than the person who's already like kind of mediocre. Been playing 15 years. I have right. no doubt. Yeah. I, I've, I was telling my wife this the other day, this is another, this is a little tangent I'm going on, but you know how, cloning humans is like outlawed. I'm not sure why this is outlawed, but like, I would love to have a clone of myself and raise myself. I would be the best fucking dad to myself. Like <laughs> it would be incredible. I don't know. I might be too hard on myself. <laughs> I, might, I might, I might really be too hard. I mean, I feel like you I know mean, your limits, you know how you are. So you know what resonates I do. with you. I, I mean, I have, I have two boys. Mm -hmm. So you could make the argument that I'm kind of doing it already. Yeah. And I have to catch myself because I'm actually my kid's hockey coach. Mm. And sometimes I have to catch myself being harder on him than I am the rest of the kids. How are you as a hockey coach? Are you yelling at the kids? No, I'm a good coach. I, I'm a, I think I'm a really good coach. Oh, they're, they're young. They're young still. Yeah, no, but I, I think I, 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 coached when I, was, uh, I coached when I was young mm -hmm. and I always loved the game. And I kind of, when I was a, when I was a kid playing, I knew I wanted to coach. Yeah. Um, and you know, my rules are very easy and the kids all know it. They can recite them. I go, number one, let's have fun. Number two, work hard, give everything you got. Number three, listen to your coaches and then we'll go off and have fun and be like, number four rule, have fun. Number five rule, have fun. And that's it. Um, you know, so that's all I just demand, like, you know, hard work, make sure you listen to your coaches and have fun for sure. And but, uh, the hard yeah. work is pretty imperative, um, for any venture in life. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Pre-flop bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your pre-flop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. 
Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I love the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Boot Camp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, Head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. So you're in college. I know you aspire to play hockey at a high-ish level, right? Um, tell me about your hockey career, what happened with that, and then what eventually you know led you into having a career in the poker world in poker. Yeah. Um, so yeah, poker, I mean, I didn't really grind in college per se, as you mentioned, just because I, I didn't have that opportunity that there was no, there was no opportunity to grind, you know, and I went to school in upstate New York and there was just, you know, I, I played poker with the guy across my hall. Um, and, and, you know, once he was broke, I, I found somebody else to play with. And, you know, luckily the next guy worked at the, uh, like the canteen where you could get sandwiches and drinks. Mm-hmm. So like after he paid me a little bit of money, he just gave me food and drinks from the canteen. Nice. So that was cool. Um, but yeah, poker, I mean, hockey, I, I've been playing hockey since I'm like three years old. I love the game. I played in college. So I played at a pretty high level. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of knew 
I probably did not work hard enough to get to the level of hockey that I would have wanted to play. Um, How come? I don't know. It's hard to work hard. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, putting the work in is, is hard. And I worked hard and I, I had a lot of passion and stuff. But I think for my skill level, for my athletic level, mm-hmm. I would have had to work harder. Other people maybe get by with better athletic ability. Others would be worse. But for where I was, I would say that, you know, if I were to quantify it, I probably reached 89% of where I could have been. Like, you know, yeah. uh, which is, I, I think, probably really good compared to most people. Sure. But, you know, I, I, for me to make it as far as I'd wanted to make it, I would have had to, like, tap into 102%. Yeah. Get some juice. Get on yeah, the- exactly. <laughs> Something right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I played in college and I love that. And, um, you know, I actually messed around in, like, uh, this kind of, like, D-level pro league for a little while for a few months it was kind of just like fighting and it was cool though. We got paid a few hundred bucks here and there and, and stayed in basically a frat house with a bunch of the hockey players. So, mm-hmm. you know, played hockey, got drunk, got in fights. It, it's too bad you, you didn't make it to the NHL because I, yeah. I, I had a student who told me he, he was in the NHL and told me that you talk about the best poker games in the world, oh, um, tra- traveling around in the NHL, like <laughs> on the bus with those guys. That's th- those are the best games on the entire planet. I, I, I would imagine. So, I mean, we actually played a few games uh, in our, in our league. And then I, 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 when I was in London, I was already older than I played with a league out there where we were like, we were sponsored. It was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we, we'd, kind of do this fun little traveling spots here and there. That was always fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I just, I, I wasn't good enough, A, and, and probably didn't work hard enough to go to the point I wanted to get to. I uh, moved out to LA. I started coaching. Then I kind of, kind of got away from coaching and started doing other things. I was acting. I was doing some writing. Acting? Um, Tell me about the acting. Uh, yeah, so I moved out to LA. I mean, I was a uh, theater major in college. It was one of my majors. And, um, and I always liked acting. I acted in high school and stuff like that. And I came out to LA and I started doing some acting. So I had some experience in front of the camera Mm -hmm. and I was always kind of comfortable there. Uh, and most actors out in LA, you know, they get job as waiters or bartenders, which of course I did at one point or another. And then eventually I was like, wait, you know, it'd be really cool. I was playing poker a little bit here and there at commerce and I found out about this like job that I had never heard about being a prop. And I was like, wait, so you get paid to play poker? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. What year is this? This was 2004. 2004. So yeah. right around Moneymaker. Yeah. Well, poker had blown up now. Poker started, rounders came out and I'd, I'd already been playing a bunch. So when I first moved out here, I moved out here in the late nineties, I was playing mm-hmm. poker. I would, I would wait tables and then I would race down the commerce with my tips and I would play usually stud eight or better. That was the game I would play. I had read one book on it and I was like, okay. And the game was great. It was a three, six stud eight or better game. And then once in a while, if I was winning, I would take the shot in the 2040 game, but that was, oh my God, that was huge. Is that, was that the sequential jump three, six to 2040? Yeah. There's no, there's was, nothing in between. <laughs> there, there was nothing in between. It was three, six study and then 2040. <laughs> that, that was, a, that was a jump. Um, 
And so I'd play that. So I love poker and everything. And then I found out, you know, fast forward a few years later and I found out about propping and I was like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. And at this point I had discovered Hold'em already, you know, Limit Hold'em. So I was like, okay. And I got a job at the bike, at casino here in LA, started propping. How much do you pay and, to prop? Um, you got paid, depending on what stakes you were willing to play, you got paid more or less. I got paid like in the beginning, like $25 an hour. Damn. But the way it worked, it would be like $10 an hour wages and then $15 an hour tips back, uh, uh, rake back. So only $10 an hour was taxable. Okay. So your $15 an hour you got was just tax-free. Mm-hmm. And then if you played a little higher, you could get 30 or 35 an hour. Um, and you got health insurance. Wow. That's not a bad deal. Right. So I was looking at it going, I'm like, wow, okay, so 30 an hour, you know, I can make 60000 a year plus health insurance. And then you keep whatever you win. So, not a bad gig. Yeah. So I started propping. I was propping Limit Hold'em. I was propping... Uh, they had a horse game that would run there. I was propping that. It was all limit games. And then m- this was a moneymaker had already happened. And that was when, like a couple of years later, this was, I'd say, 05, I started doing live at the bike and No Limit Hold'em started taking off. And I remember talking to Bart and Bart and I are chatting about this because we were both just limit hold'em props. And I was like, Bart, you wouldn't believe it. I was like, dude, this game is like, it's ridiculous. Like I'm, I'm still only risking like two stacks of yellow, which is a thousand bucks. But I'm like, a good session, I'm winning two, three thousand. He's like, really? He's like, yeah. Because Bart, you know, Bart was working. Are, was he a bartender back then too? He, he was, was bartending. Propping? He was bartending before that, actually. So it's kind of funny. I, I actually bartended at a place called Miyagi's on Sunset Boulevard, and a couple of years after, or maybe a year after, Bart bartended at a place called Saddle Ranch, which was owned by the same owners. This guy named Larry, who was a complete dick. <laughs> I mean, the guy was just—he was a complete dick. I mean, why, just a, why was he a dick? What's a what's a Larry story? Oh, uh, he just like he was just—he just literally scream and berate his 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 staff. He'd be like, "Sell more, sell more, sell more. I want more money." He had like—I mean, he just like—he was like this little Napoleon, you know? It's just—he's just a complete asshole. And I, I there were a number of times, and I actually got a really good section at Miyagi's because I was a good seller, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I was much younger then, and and. There were a couple of times where he'd like, he'd start to rip into me and I'd be like, stop, because I'm not going to take it. Go yell at somebody else. So I'm not playing that fucking game. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so then uh, Bart and I met in, uh, we met in 2004 because I started propping already and he was trying to get a job propping there. And then eventually he got hired as a prop there and he and I were propping together, limit holding basically, maybe stud eight once in a while. And then we'd, uh, then we started live at the bike. And that's kind of when like no limit hold'em started to like take hand. And I was like, wait a second. Um, so the first couple of years I was propping, playing, I, I kind of call it like a, a professional apprenticeship almost. Like you're not like a true pro because you're being supported by the casino and you're getting paid. I think, but that was all I was doing was playing poker at that point. I mean, and I, that's been, if that's all you're doing to me, that feels like a true pro. Like even if yeah, you're, but you're, I mean, you're getting but the casino kickback. Right. But I mean, but let's say, you know, when I played limit hold'em, you know, like one year playing limit hold'em, 
we would play 10, 20, 20, 40, basically, is what the games I was playing a lot of. And I'd play, that was the limits. 10, 20, 20, 40 were generally the limits. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think like one year I made like $24,000. Yeah, I'm not going to live on $24,000 in LA. So if I wasn't making an additional 50 from the casino, I wasn't getting by. Sure. Um, that's fair. A so profes- that kind of- professional 10, 20 limit hold'em player. That's a, that's a tough life. That's what I meant. So uh, that's kind of where I was at. But then I started playing no limit and I was like, you know, I, I was having like a $12,000 a month and I was like, holy fuck. Like, this is amazing, right? They need you to prop in those games. It feels like those games are just going to get built up. They didn't. They didn't. I mean, the way the props worked were generally, you know, we started games. If games got short, they'd throw us in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I had a good enough arrangement with the live at the bike that I was able to kind of, they were like, okay, you can work live at the bike. I guess I was providing them a service with that. Mm-hmm. And you can prop, but you can prop whatever game you want and we won't move you. Ooh. So that was, yeah. You could just play whatever game you want, basically. Well, then suddenly, yeah. Then I got to the point where I was like, I had no schedule. I was getting paid $25 an hour to play poker. I was like, okay, yeah, sign me up. Like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, and I was playing, you know, I was playing, and because I was already playing pretty high limit hold'em, like, I remember one year at the World Series, I was playing at the Bellagio, I was playing as high as, like, 8160 limit at this point. When no limit kind of took hold, I just naturally just joined, I jumped right into 510. Like, I never yeah. played one, I never played one and two, ever. Yeah. I mean, I, I've played it since, I mean, like, in a, in a whatever game, you know, but I've, I've never, I've, I jumped in right into a 510 deep stack game. Yes, yeah, same here. I, funny enough, I, I went from playing five ten limit to no limit, getting spread on one of those casinos to nowhere, and it was five ten no limit. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll play that instead. Um, cool. And never played, never went through the grind of battling in like the one two games ever either. But I mean, what what was the difference in the limit games and then transitioning to no limit? Like, was it more exciting? What was the, the feeling as a player back in, you know, 2004? It was, I mean, for me at that point, it was way more exciting because, I mean, I was like a prop grinder. So, you know, I was playing 40 hours a week, you know, week after week, week after week of limit hold'em, stud eight, Omaha eight or better. Um, you know, so it was a grind. And, you know, we would see flops five, six ways. They were just mountains of yellow chips in the middle and you know it was just okay i'll play well and just hope my hand holds you know against oh. four people chasing sure that, that so, was limit limit hold them back in the day limit poker right right um you know and then i i mean there was an adjustment period when i started playing bigger and i started realizing i was like okay i'm getting these are i'm playing a lot of heads up pots here and i was like okay so the game is way different i don't i don't need to make hands right and um you know I can actually fold in certain spots because I'm not getting 17 to one. <laughs> not getting 232 to one on this right. river. Like I can, I can fold the spot here. I can, and, and so I, I, that was one adjustment, just playing higher limit. And then no limit in the beginning was just kind of a revelation for me. Cause first of all, it was fun. It was different. You know, it's like, you know, having sex with the same woman for 20 years and then suddenly being like, Oh my God, there's somebody else <laughs> out there. Not that I would be interested in that at all. Sure. But I'm just saying, um, no, I, I just think like, it was something different. It was really fun. It was exciting. And I, 
at that point, the game was just so ridiculously easy. I mean, it was like like the point where like limped around pot. I'd be in the big blind with Jack Deuce. The flop would come out. The flop would come out. Ace Deuce Deuce, and somebody would literally stack off with an ace. Of course, like, yeah. Like just like a really basic like. So I was just like, oh, this is stupid. Like I didn't have to bluff ever, although it was fun too. I literally just made a hand and got paid and got paid ridiculous amounts of money. Right. Um, I mean, that's nobody had any concept of like anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, back when, you know, no limit cash hit the streets. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I, I, I feel like I had this, I, I was already kind of a little bit intuitive. Like, and I remember I got into one hand with a guy, like I get into a hand with a guy where like I had King queen, I had king, queen, and the flop comes out, king, queen, three. And the way the betting went on the flop was like, bet, raise, three, bet, four, bet, all in. And I I folded king, queen, because I was like, well, he's either got the same hand as me or a set of threes, because there's nothing else he could possibly have. And he had ace, king. Um, So... There were already points where, like, I was like, okay, everybody's overplaying their hand. Um, at this point, I, was no, I wasn't really trying to figure out what people were trying to accomplish as much, mm-hmm. which obviously is imperative when you're playing poker. But I just realized that everybody was overplaying certain hands. Like, like in that hand where I had Jack Deuce versus – I think the guy had – remember the hand correctly? He had ace seven, not even a good ace, on, like, an ace-deuce-deuce board. I remember, like, bet, raise, three bet. And as the money started pouring in, I'm just thinking to myself going, fuck, did he limp in with aces? Or does, yeah. does he have ace deuce? Like, I thought I was Right. I was like, I was like, wow. And he just kept pouring money in the pot. And I was like, okay. And then he showed like ace seven. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, it was just, yeah, it was really, really easy. Um, I just remember thinking like my bad days when I was playing Nolan at Hold'em back in like 05 and 06, my bad days were... I'd lose like a two buy-ins tops. Um, my bad days playing limit, I could lose like five racks. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and I assume your good days were pretty good. And at some oh, point, yeah. at, at some point, you know, more education filters into the market. More people learn. Card owners fires up. People are grinding online poker. Just the game gets a little bit more sophisticated, right? Like what did you use to learn and grow over the years? You know, those early years playing the no limit cash streets. I mean, I didn't do a ton in the beginning and then I moved to London. And then when I moved to London, I played some online. Um, Why'd you move to London? uh, I moved to London. I had gotten a divorce and I was dating a girl and then I got a job. I got a job offer to cover the NFL for sky sports. So I was like, Cool, let's go. I mean, in fact, my, so my, girl, my girlfriend at the time was British and I was living in LA and we kind of were like, we wanted to be together. So we made the decision. I was like, okay, you look for a job in LA. I'll look for a job in London, whoever gets one first. And then I got this amazing offer to cover the NFL and NASCAR for Sky Sports. I was like, I'm going to London. How, how did you get that gig? I mean, that that's a, sounds like a pretty cushy gig. Yeah, I mean, at this point I was broadcasting poker already. So I had already, I was already, I had gotten hired to do the million dollar cash game. So I was commentating on that. And, um, you know, I reached out to a couple of the directors and producers on that show 
And I was like, hey, I'm looking to kind of come to London. Is there other work for me? And one of the directors, a guy named Martin Turner, who's like a legendary director uh, in the UK, he's like, you'd be great for the NFL. So he recommended me to the producer of the NFL at Sky, who I met with. He was like, I met with him for 12 minutes. And he was like, I love you. You're hired. And I was like, awesome, cool. And then four months later, he hired me to do the NASCAR as well. Even though I, you know, I didn't know a damn thing about NASCAR at the time. Um, I had to you, learn. Got time, you got time to learn. They drive in yeah. circles very, very often. And eventually they stop and somebody wins. But yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you're, 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 you're about as qualified as I was at the beginning. <laughs> so it's perfect. Um, but yeah, so I went to London. I was playing online poker and I was playing a little bit here and there. I was still, I, I was always doing poker commentary. So for me, a lot of my education was not only trying to keep up as a poker player, but I felt as a commentator that I needed to stay as relevant as possible. So I needed to know what was happening. And I, and, and I surrounded myself with some like-minded individuals, whether it was the co-commentators I was working with, uh, whether it was one of my best friends, Bart Hansen, and he and I would talk poker all the time. Uh, so a lot of it was just that. But I definitely, when I moved to London, I would say that my poker playing kind of, my poker playing education level went down a little bit because I was broadcasting more and playing a lot less. I was playing online, but I was just like fucking around, like, and, you know, like sitting in front of the couch, just playing a, you know, a $3 sit and go or a $20, you know, $20 MTT. Yeah. You're, you're learning about the left turn, left turn world. Yeah, I, I, was, I was traveling a lot. I was going to see Italy and I was going to, you know, Kiev and all these wonderful places. So when I came back to L.A. and I lived with Bart. So when I came back to L.A., so it was L.A., uh, my second visit, my second sit in L.A., that was really my biggest learning. I came back to L.A., I moved in with Bart Hansen. Did the, the gig ended with the NFL and Sky Sports? No, I, I probably could have kept it going. I it actually kept going for a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. But my work visa had run out. I could have gotten another one in all likelihood. But I think at this point in my life, my girlfriend and I had broken up. And I kind of had to decide. I lived there for a year after that as well. But I had to decide. My work visa was running out. And I had to decide, do I want to stay in London for the long haul? Or do I want to come back? Do I want to be American and be here? And I just kind of realized, I was like, if I stay in London, I'm going to meet somebody here. I'm going to start a family here. And I'm never going to go back. And I kind of missed like going to the bar at nine o'clock and watching a baseball game. Um, what are some things, some <laughs> reasons to stay in? in oh, the, I in love the London. I loved it. Honestly. I mean, you hear seven different, you, if you, if you go into town, like in this, like right in the central London, you hear seven different languages in one day. Um, the tube. I mean, I, I didn't, I, I, I sold my car before I went there. I didn't drive ever. Um, the pub life. Uh, the old houses history. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's such a green city too. I mean, there are so many amazing parks. You can bike, you can hike. Um, the fact that you can literally jump on a $25 plane ride and hit and go to Italy for a weekend. You know, all those things were just so amazing. You know, obviously the pandemic stopped all that, but when I was there, that wasn't going on. It was, it was, I, I told people, I go, if the weather was even mediocre, because it's not, I probably would have stayed there forever. And I had a tough decision because I had really good friends there. I was, I was on a hockey team out there. Uh, one of the guys in the hockey team, actually, the goalie was trying to set me up with a girl. And I was like, dude, she's hot, but I want to be open with you. I want to be upfront. I think I'm moving back to LA. <laughs> and he was like, oh, 
He's like, well, it's my wife's friend, so don't fuck her over. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, I get it, man. I get it. Um, but I was like, I mean, I, I, like, I had a life there. You know, sure. I had a place to live. Like, I loved it. Um, it's ridiculously expensive, and the weather is atrocious. Besides that, it's amazing. Like, I love London. Yeah, so LA um, is ridiculously expensive, but the weather's perfect. So, but LA's not. I mean, LA's LA's nothing compared to LA's everything compared to like the rest of America. But it's really cheap compared to London. What's like a two bedroom two bedroom apartment in London? What do you to think? buy? No, to just rent. To rent like a two bedroom like in the center of town. Uh something comparable. Something comparable. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. To- like I'm saying, like if you were. Um, like in the center of town, like a two bedroom. I mean, I haven't been there in a while, but when I was there and this is, I mean, you're talking, uh, okay. I had a place in Notting Hill, which is kind of a cool spot, right? Really cool little trendy area. Um, sort of Westish central London. And I was paying at the time nine, I had a one bedroom and I was paying 900 pounds a week. And a pound is like two X. At this point, it, it was like 1.5, 1.6. A week. A week. So, whew, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty pricey. It's like yeah. six, 6K US a month. It was ridiculous. And, and you can definitely get cheaper than that. You can definitely get cheaper than that. I know places that are, might be like 375 a week. But keep in mind, like 375 a week, it's still like, this was back then. That was like, you know, 525 American. You're looking at like 2200. Is the rate of pay much higher there? I mean, to compensate? I don't think so. No? Ugh. No, that was honestly that one of them. I mean, I was like a presenter on Sky Sports and like, you know, maybe I was making enough money to eventually buy like a one bedroom in London. <laughs> yeah. You're like on TV and like, maybe I'll be able to make my, my rent payment this week. I don't know. how. Yeah. I mean, London is, is like, like I said, I mean, LA is not cheap, but compared to London, it's like night and day. Yeah. That's that. That is pretty crazy expensive. Yeah, um, it, it was it was ridiculous. Um, but when I came back from London and I lived with Bart, and at this point, I was do I was still doing some broadcasting, but not a ton. You know, I was do I was I was just gonna start doing the World Series again, but that was only okay. That's during the summer, um, and Bart hadn't even started CrushLivePoker dot com yet, and. We were like, you know, I was doing a little bit of commentary here and there. I was doing some stuff for Poker Stars and, and stuff like that. I was covering like their W Coops and Scoops and things like that. But I didn't have a ton else going on. So I was like, you know what? I'm in LA. Fuck it. I'll dive back into the poker scene. But I was like, well, I got to get better really quick. So Bart and I would just, you know, we would have dinner and, you know, we'd have beer and wine and just talk poker. And he had really immersed himself in the poker scene when I went to London and I kind of focused on broadcasting, he really immersed himself in the poker scene full. Like he just dove in. So he was a wealth of knowledge for me. Yeah. Which, so basically learned through conversations with Bart and I mean, this is one of the best ways to learn anything really just find somebody that's like where you want to be. Um, that is also hungry and immerse themselves in the world and just spend a lot of time with him discussing this thing that both of you love so much. Yeah. And then as I, and obviously as I got more, as, as I started, as I jumped back into it and I started playing more, I, that was when I started, I kind of made the bike my home. I mean, I was playing, I live at the bike kind of started up again and I got a job there doing like a little bit of commentary, but I was getting paid $25 an hour to just play off schedule whenever I wanted to. 
And I was like, okay, fuck it. I can play a ton of poker. So I was playing, you know, four days a week. And then it kind of, it was a good give and take because, you know, then, you know, Bart and I would sit and we'd talk poker and I, and he'd be like, what do you think of this line? And I would, and, we, and, and I always say that, you know, you surround yourself with like-minded individuals and you're, you're bound to get better. Yeah, it's, it's inevitable. I mean, and if you're not, uh, if you're not as obsessed with it as they are, then they'll stop coming around you. <laughs> like they'll stop having those conversations. Right. Right. Um, why the, the, the commentary, you know, you mentioned your prop player playing limit. You love the strategy of the game. What, what got you into that world of the media side? Uh, honestly, it was kind of an accident. I mean, I, I studied broadcast journalism as well in school. It was one of my other, I, I liked it, but I remember talking to my dad about this and he's like, Tuck, and he says straight out, my dad used to call me Tuck also. So um, anyway, he just be like, unless you're an athlete, that is a really, really tough gig. And I'd be, and I'd be like, anyway, you, you turn on any baseball game, football game, whatever it is, and it's always ex-athlete, 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 one broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and uh, the broadcaster, you know, their lifespan, I mean, they, they could work it for 40 years. So, like, good luck replacing them. Right. You know? Um, so, it's just, a, it's a really tough gig. And my, my brother-in-law actually wanted to do that. He went to Syracuse. He went to the school in Newhouse and got an offer to, I think he got an offer to, like, cover, like, a minor league, like, A-level baseball team in, like, Iowa. For, you know, he was going to get paid, like, $11,000 a year. And my sister was, like, Straight no, out I'm- of college? Wow. That's, that, what a gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my sister, my sister was like, my sister was gonna get, my sister was about to marry him, and she was like, um, yeah, I, she kind of put the next. She was like, I don't want to live in Iowa, and if you're making eleven thousand dollars a year, how are we gonna do this? Yeah. So, um, my brother-in-law and my and I are very different people because I would have been like, let's do it. We're going to Iowa. <laughs> um, <clears throat> don't buy a lot of shit. We're getting a horrible home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I had that, if he had that opportunity, instead he's a lawyer. I'm like, okay, you do you. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so I wasn't, I, I, I had done some acting and I, w- I had been on some shows and I had some success as an actor. So I'd been in front of the camera and I had done some writing and stuff like that. And this is 2004. I was propping at the bike and they started a new show at the bike called live at the bike. And funny enough, Bart Hansen actually went to Syracuse and studied broadcast journalism. This is what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a broadcaster more than anything. And I was like, eh, whatever. Um, but they came to me and they came to Bart and they were like, hey, we think you guys would be really good at this. And I was like, huh? I'll give it a shot. Okay. But I was actually worried. I was like, well, how much am I going to, it's going to hurt my hourly, <laughs> you know, because I'm making money playing poker. Um, but I did it anyway. And it kind of just took off from there, to be honest. Yeah. Now like, you're one of the guys. I, I, you'll be in there 40 years and <laughs> everybody's like, hey, when's my turn? Uh, sorry. I, I, yeah, I kind of fell in, but I kind of fell into it. Like it was like they started this live stream on the internet before there really were any live streams on the internet. And I got in there and I was very fortunate to be able to kind of suck for a long time because, you know, we didn't have a big audience in the beginning and the production value was so bad in the beginning and it's on the internet. It didn't make a difference that I was green. Yeah. Because everything was green about it. The whole thing was green. It was all, you know, it was all raw. People so probably like, okay. loved it regardless, just because it was just something new, you know, right. people that, and, that stumbled on it. And it kind of got a cult following and they picked it up in Europe. And then Bart and I started doing, we had to do like uh, pickups basically, because they would, they'd package the shows 
So they'd make like, let's say we had a four hour show one night. They would, they would edit it down to a one hour show. So Bart and I had to like in, in, in voiceover sessions in a, in a sound studio, we would have to voice like in and outs of commercials, like welcome back, you know, or we'll be right back after this, you know, whatever it might be. Um, or we'd, we'd be like, okay, well, uh, you know, we'd skip over a bunch of hands. So we'd jump ahead, you know, and we have to explain that. So I kind of learned that world a little bit. So this was very much like I got a lot of like on the job training, which if you go to broadcast school, you're paying like if you go to USC or Northwestern or Syracuse, you're paying $100,000 for the education that I got that I got paid for. Yeah. Can't beat that. And I got very lucky. And right place, right time. Very much. uh, To, you know, to move forward in poker broadcasting, because I mean, who who knew, right? Like (laughs) who knew that this was like, going to be a, a big thing um five ten years down the road yeah without a doubt i mean it was i was there moneymaker just happened rounders just happened i mean the wpt on the travel channel was kind of taking over everybody loved that so you know there was a, a hunger and a thirst for another poker show and then you combine that with the internet which was still kind of in its infancy at the time it was definitely a right place, right time situation. Yeah. So you came back to LA, you're staying with Bart, you're learning, you're growing, you're discussing strategy. What was the, the major difference from like the time you were propping, playing no limit in the beginning to after Bart when you were like, okay, like I, I've found my footing, you, you've advanced strategically, ready to battle in the poker world. You mean in the games or in my own mentality? Your own mentality, your own strategy, your own growth as a poker player. When I came back, I remember Bart, having, Bart and I having a conversation, and it seems so ridiculously basic now, and it's, I mean, it's, it's over 10 years ago, so probably for now it's definitely basic. But um, there was an epiphany in my poker game, and Bart said it to me, and he just said, you know, when you're betting, you know, we're not betting to get information. I was like, okay, I got that. That I knew. I knew that was already five years ago. But he goes, you know, we're betting either when you're betting, you're either betting to get, you're either betting because you want to get value from a worse hand or you want to get a better hand to fold. That's it. He goes, very rarely are you betting for like equity protection. And right. I was like, but he said, in Hold'em, we're not as worried about equity protection, you know, but, you know, essentially it, he broke it down to very simple. You know, we're betting to either get value from worse or to get better to fold. And it seems so ridiculously simple, but at the time, it was this eye-opening epiphany for me in my game. I think people it, still struggle with this today. Um, they, I know. They still know. struggle. They will like turn middle pair and it's checked to them and they'll just like bet pot. And I'm like, why? Why did you do this thing? Like, <laughs> And that's the biggest thing. I remember uh, Phil Galfon tweeted this about this a few years ago and he just said, he goes, you know, just... You know, if you really want to work on your parking game, the first thing you can ask yourself, or just this is, why are you betting? Why are you putting chips in the pot? What, what, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, and then obviously there's like, you know, there's, you can peel back the onion and there's so many other stories, you know, if you try to figure out what's my opponent trying to accomplish and everything. But that simple phrase that Bart taught me just made so much sense. And I, it, it got me to the point where I was like, because I would say before that, there were points where I would make the mistake where I was betting because I was afraid if I checked, I didn't know what my opponent was going to do. I'd be like, ah, I don't know. And then I just stopped and I just breathe and I go, okay, this is my hand. This is my range, my opponent's hand, my opponent's range. And I go, okay, well, my, 
am I, if I'm betting here, am I betting for value? Or am I betting as a bluff? What am I trying to do here? What am I trying to get to fold? What am I trying to get value from? Um, and, you know, from that first leaping off point that I learned from Bart many, many years ago, I was able to take that and go pretty far. And I mean, I, I mean, the bike game, I crushed for years. Um, I was playing full time, just five, five, by the way. And the game was so good because there was no regular five, 10 game at the bike. So none of the pros would come out. None of the, you know, commerce pros would come out because they didn't want to play five, five because it was beneath them. And they're all, they all have egos. So I was playing in this five, five, 300 to a thousand game. Now, when I first got there, it was only a $500 buy-in game, but I convinced them to make it a thousand dollar game a hundred percent for selfish reasons. I fed them all this bullshit about, oh, the game is better. Da, da, da. It was all because I wanted it to be bigger. So I got this game to go. It was a 300 to $1,000 buy-in, 5-5 five, five game. You could straddle if you wanted to. And because there was no 5-10 game, none of, the, none of the top pros came in. And the bike for a few years was my absolute, like, I felt like, I felt like the king of the, the, the I was just like the king shark there. Like, yeah. no, no, these are all mine. Um, I mean, I literally, I'd have pros leaving my table because they didn't want to play with me. Um, but I mean, I'm not going to sit there and tell like I was the best poker player in the world or anything like that. But I would say that at that level, against that competition, I don't know how many other players were going to make more money than I was making. I mean, for a few years, I was making about $100 an hour, a little bit over $100 an hour playing 5-5. Five, five. Yeah, that's real good. You know, I mean, <laughs> I think the the upper reaches of five five these days probably something like fifty, maybe maybe sixty five if you're like world class and have like an especially juicy pool to draw from. Right. Um, it, it's funny in poker, like you have options for actions to take. You can check and you can call and you can bet and you can raise and you have to understand that we have all these tools to work with and they all have utility in different spots. So you need to understand like how to use them. Like everything is not a bet, right? Like sometimes you just check and then you call and bluff catch because it has a specific utility based on the situation that you're in. Um, and somewhere along the way in poker training or something, just uh, the conventional wisdom was just be betting or raising and never calling or checking and just be betting, raising or folding. And, and like, it's so wrong and it's so bad and it's hurt so many people's poker career. The truth is it's a messy game. It's hard and you got to figure some stuff out and you got to figure out when to check and when to call. Yeah. I, I think that's, it's something that I definitely struggled with in the beginning. And I think I see a lot of amateurs and a lot of inexperienced players kind of make that mistake where they just, um, they feel like, well, if I don't bet here, how am I going to win the pot? What's my path to victory? Right. And I think, first off, I mean, number one, you, you don't need to win every hand. Yeah, that's, that's not the point of the game is not <laughs> to win every pot. The, the point of the game is to make the most money. Right. So, I mean, first off, you don't need to win every hand. Um, and, and number two, there's, there's a lot of other ways, you know, like, and you kind of seen that and you've seen that with some, you know, players over, over, over the years, you know, whether it's a delayed C-bet, whether it's checking back and then raising turn, whether, you know, there's a, a, a different um, checking back two streets and then going for value on the third, on, on the river. I think that's probably, and, and, and the funny thing is when I do commentary, I think, um, I, I often see that as well, where so I can see the cards. 
And yet sometimes I don't know if they're bluffing or value betting. Well, that's and I know probably they good because <laughs> they don't know either, right? <laughs> like they don't know. And I'm just going, I, I, I think this is a, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> High level commentary, but spot on. Because <laughs> how could we know? But it's really weird because I can see the cards, you know? And you're just thinking and you're going, okay, well. Yeah, well, the player that's playing the hand can see the cards too, and they don't know either. So, you know, it's just a mystery. Um, and even today, by the way, I mean, I, I commentate on a local live stream called Hustler Casino Live, which is amazing. If anybody wants to check out a great live cash game. Yeah, tiny Cas- tiny local stream that's going to have Phil Ivey on, I think, tonight. Right, right, right. I shouldn't say it's tiny anymore. It's, it's enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're crushing. But I've been, I've been commentating on that. And I can't tell you, there was a hand the night I was commentating on where it was like, one of the guys had king eight of clubs. The other one had ace king, right? The king eight of clubs was out of position. The flop is like king jack four, two diamonds, okay? No clubs. The king eight of clubs check raises the flop. I'm okay. Like, okay, yeah. Then check calls turn. And then on a river blank, he leads out huge. I think backdoor spades got there. Like, I think it was like king, king, jack, four, two diamonds, one spade. Turn is maybe like, you know, the seven of spades and the river is like the deuce of spades. Mm-hmm. And king eight then. And on the river, I was, I was trying to think. I was like, is he turning his hand into a bluff? Is he trying to rep backdoor spades? Has to be, right? I, you have to be. I don't think so. That's the thing. I mean, that would make more sense. Yeah, I would think that like check raise, check line, maybe you can say that you structure it in a way that you have like lots of backdoor spades, even though if you do check raise and turn backdoor spades, you're probably betting the turn. So like check raise, check call doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to rep backdoor spades. I mean, I, I was trying to, I mean, I, I, as, a, as a general rule of thumb when I'm doing commentary, I try not to climb inside somebody's head because I don't, I can't guess what they're thinking. But I, I did try to think of this hand that I was like, okay, well, I'm, Probably not check raising with king eight of clubs on this particular texture very often. Um, but I said, you know, as played, I go, if he wants to represent backdoor spades, I go, check raising the river would be pretty sexy. Like check jamming river. Yeah. I think river's probably going to go check check a lot. Might be. The, the, I think the problem is, ah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the strategy of it. I, the, the problem is if you check raise with a backdoor flush draw, like some sort of like ace queen, ace 10 of spades, and you turn the spade, you're mostly going to continue barreling. You're not going to just start check calling. So like repping the backdoor flush is very not credible to me, no matter what, no matter what they do really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the King on the board was not the spade. Mm -hmm. And I remember when he did lead out big on the river, the player with ace King did stop for a second and go like, did you make, did you hit your spade here? Right before they called. Right, right, right. Exactly. Before they took 11 seconds and said, okay. <laughs> right before go. they put the money in and won the pot. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean that's, that's the good news about live poker, right? Live poker is alive and well. And I think that at most stakes around the world, you can still study up if you're committed to being a winning poker player and be a winner in live cash games. Yeah. Just because I, I, I have been like hearing that. for I've been hearing for years. I remember when I came back from London, everybody told me, "Duck, the games are tougher now." 
Okay. And I was like, okay. And I went in and I was like, they still seem pretty. And then I've been hearing this for years, like, oh, the game's dead. It's so hard now. It's so hard now. And I'm not going to say that the games aren't tougher now than they were, but I, I still see a lot of, a, a lot of really bad poker players playing poker. Even the online games are very beatable. You know, a, a student of mine started playing online poker a year ago. He ho- co-hosts Tactical Tuesday with me and basically moved up to 510NL um, within six months from 100 No Limit and, yeah, has had himself, um, you know, mid-six-figure year battling in, in cash games. And, and, like, that's the reality. Or maybe, maybe low six-figure year. But either way, a pretty damn good year for that's somebody that previously hasn't played online poker. So, like, it's a thing that can be done if you put your nose to the grindstone and you try and you do the work. Um, but if you ask somebody playing live poker, like a live pro, it, how the online poker world is, they'll just be like, nah, they're killers. Everybody's a killer and you can't beat it. But, like, that's not the fucking truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, unfortunately, as I live in LA, I don't play online poker very often these days, but yeah, it's just everything. Everybody makes things out to be harder than they are just in every facet of life. I found like I, I release four podcasts a week, like four. And people are like, that's insane. And it's like, they, they struggled to release like one every two weeks, but I mean, it's not that hard having good conversations with interesting human beings multiple times a week. Like to me, it's pretty fun. Well, I'll give you especially I'll give you extra credit for today though, since you're doing it with a, a, a less than interesting person. So well done you. Um, I, I think four podcasts a week is hard. So um, I mean, l- listen, if you dedicate yourself and you want to do it, you can do it, but I give you credit for that. Cause um, I put out, I put out one podcast every two weeks and uh <laughs> You know, sometimes, sometimes, no, I mean, cause I want to make sure that they're all compelling. You know, sometimes they're difficult. Yeah. You got to pay. I just pay the money for production. Like here, take money, make this, make this look good. Um, take out me sounding like an idiot. Like, like today, for instance, I am not on my a game. I'm like, I think I got four hours of sleep and uh, just not feeling all there. Not feeling it. Nah, not feeling it, but fuck it, man. The show must go on. Hey, listen, that's, uh, that's, that's a, a true pro. Um, and, and knowing that you're, knowing your B game is better than most people's A is probably good. So there you go. I don't know that, but I'll, I'll accept the compliment, Tuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that for sure. Um, let's move to the lightning round. You know, let's uh, move to the lightning round and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, so if you could gift all poker players one book to read and does not have to be about poker, what would it be? Uh, lightning round. I just read a book called deep survival. I haven't and, heard uh, of it. What's it about? It's, uh, it is by Lawrence Gonzalez. It, it is about, um, the, the human race and, and how, um, it, it's about human beings and how some people seem to survive certain moments and some don't and, uh, where your brain goes in moments of crises. And, um, so it was, I was recommended to me. And I, I, I read it in a day and a half. I could not put it down. And it is, I think, for, for poker players who, um, you, we all know, you know how there are certain, certain poker players out there. This is not really a lightning. I know. But um, there, you know, there are certain poker players out there that just seem to like always hit. They always do well. And you're like, how's that guy? And I, I think they, they have this. So I, I think whether you're a poker player, I think you're, the, you're just a human being. It's a great book. It's uh, again, it's right behind me. The Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. 
Yeah, that sounds like a compelling book. And it's something that I've actually spent a fair amount of time thinking about how Victor, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, about the Holocaust and his experience going through the Holocaust and how he went through it and came out like a transcendent human being through that horrible experience, right? And it's, it's always stuck with me that like some people can go through these awful events and somehow just come out changed and I'm not going to say better for it, but different and still resilient and, you know, not just a total mess of a human being. Yeah. I'll read just a couple of things for you guys really quick. So it's like here, just a couple of excerpts here. Like this book will help you, will help you should you find, ever find yourself pinned under a rock in a roaring whitewater river, but it will also help you if you ever find yourself wondering why your brain works the way it does under the stress of everyday life. Um, basically deep survival, who lives, who dies and why. Nice. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to pick it up. I need, a, I need a good immersive day and a half read about something interesting. If you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about the world of poker, what would you change? Uh, man, um, if I could wave a magic wand and I could change one thing, um, I would make cash games eight-handed. I, I'm sure I could come up with lots of better <laughs> things, but uh, on the spot, and if I could just do one thing right now, I would make cash games all eight-handed, whether it's, I, I don't want, or, 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 or lower. Yeah. No nine-handed, six, no, nine, six no nine-handed, no ten-handed. Let's add an ante in there, too. Let's add an ante. I'm fine with that, but in minimum, no, I, I never want more than eight people in my game. Yeah. Not even, not even if it's the VIP, making it ten-handed? No, then get, rid of, then get rid of somebody else. <laughs> just kick somebody out of the game. Or make, get get or the hell make out it, of here. Or make it two five-handed games. All right. That's, fine that's fair. I, I don't want to play nine-handed personally or 10-handed. Yeah. God forbid. That's like the worst of the worst. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm down for all eight-handed or six-handed games. Yeah. If you could uh, put up a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What's your billboard say? Uh, don't punch down. Don't be nice to people. Um, there's a saying, and it's, it's kind of a weird saying, like don't punch down. It, it, it implies that like a dealer is below you, which they're not. Mm. But what, it, what, I, what I read from that is somebody told me this many years ago, and it makes a lot of sense. It, what it means to me is more of if somebody is in the customer service business, they're a dealer, they're a waiter, they're a bartender. So they're in a position where they can't fight back. They just, they can't because they'll lose their job. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't, don't treat them like they're below you, you know? I Oh, for sure. And I, I just had Jen Fisher on um, the podcast. Uh, oh, Jen. She, yep. And she was telling stories about dealing in the late 70s and the 80s and how it was not a good situation for dealers, um, even amongst you know some of the more prominent poker players of the day who were, in your words, punching down. And yeah, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, some people that most likely... Um, me coming up in the poker world thought of as heroes, not acting so heroic to their fellow human beings. Yeah, I genuinely think it's disgusting. Um, I remember I went on a date with a girl when I first moved to LA who treated the waiter in a, in a quite a rude way. And I, I basically ended the date like 10 minutes later. Yeah. I was like, you're just, I was like, you just treated it. You just treated somebody you don't even know like that. I was like, I, I, I've seen all I need to say. Um, 
I, I just, yeah, to me, treating, I mean, I'd like, I'd like people to treat others really nice, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. But when somebody is in a vulnerable position and they literally can't do anything except just take it, yeah, for you to take advantage of that is just like, it's disgusting. Um, I have no respect for it whatsoever. Yeah, it's not good. It's certainly, yeah. it's just really not good. Um, it's not even just like, and some people are like, well, and it's bad business and it drives, it makes the game less friendly and all these things. Yeah, it's, it's also just, it's a fellow human being. Why are you being a dick? Absolutely. You know? Like, and also another thing is like, good players should know fucking better than to blame oh. somebody who's randomly shuffling a deck for a river card. Like, get the fuck out of here, person. Like, right, you, right, right. you just got to know better that this person's not coming out after you. And quite frankly, if they could, they probably would. Um, but they can't. You know, this is just like the game and the just the way that we make our living. It's just absurd to me. Yeah, it is absolutely absurd. But it's even, I mean, even if you're not a professional, though, I don't, I don't, like, even if you're not smart enough to realize that the dealer can't have any control over it, you know, if you really think that that dealer is unlucky for you, that's fine. That's, that's fine. You still don't have to, there's still no reason for you to treat them badly. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying there is. I'm just saying, like, the people that ought to know better, that's just, oh, it's just, uh, I don't know. It, it just yeah. gets to me. Um, how'd you that feel? I, my cool. How, how'd you feel? We've gone, I know it's been talked about ad nauseum, but like, what about somebody that's like punching, not down, but maybe sideways, <laughs> like the Phil Helmy tirade um, on Zeno the other day? What do you think about that? I, I think he crossed the line, obviously. I mean, uh, I know Phil. I like Phil. Yeah. I, I, I think he crossed the line. You know, I think the first, I mean, I get you're frustrated. I get it's emotional. I get you're pouring everything into it. I understand that. I mean, I think people kind of, I think people took the, you know, I'm going to burn the Rio down. I think they took that a little too literal. Because, like, <laughs> I thought it was a good been, line, personally. People, people have been saying that for years. Of course, of course. People have been saying that for years. It's like, whatever, you know, I mean, like, it's like, you know, the, the same people are like, you can't say bomb in an airport. Bomb. I can say what a bomb, 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 bomb. <laughs> like, and I just like stupid. Like, I, like that didn't bother me. But like the, the 19th fuck was a bit much. And I think Phil just has to realize that whether he wants it or not, and he clearly does want it, he is one of the faces of poker. You know, he's representing our game. And I don't think that was bad for the game, so to speak, because, you know, it's still publicity, but it's just like, like I said, I mean, the first two, fine. Like 20 minutes into it, you're still going on like, okay, come on, dude. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's like the, I think it was a Chris Rock stand-up where he said, like, that tiger didn't go crazy. That tiger went tiger. Like, Phil Helmuth, uh, he didn't go crazy. Phil Helmuth just went Phil Helmuth. <laughs> that's just, that, that's, that's yeah. ha- what he does. Um, but I, I do think he, like, juices it up specifically, maybe for production um, on the back end. I don't I think know. it's real. I think, you it's, think real. it's all real. It's I not. Do. I, kn- I know him. I know him. And I, I think it's real. I think he's, he, I think it's real. Um, I think it's a, it's a persona that's been developed through the years. But I think at this point, you know, you could almost like, you know, if you tell lies long enough, it becomes who you are. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's who he is now. Um, I think he went too far. I think he knows it. I, I don't think the players at the table really cared. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I haven't talked to Aunt Zeno about it or not, but I, I don't think he, I don't think Zeno gives, I don't think he cared. I think if anything, he was kind of laughing at it, but you know, it was, he, he definitely crossed the line. He went too far. He went, he like, you know, there's uh there's, 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 you know, this far, you know, you can kind of like take a step 
And then you can get to like the Helmuthian line, which is okay for Phil. But then he went like four steps past, past the Helmuthian <laughs> line. So. Four steps past the Helmuthian line. Right. Um, all right. Like a book. <laughs> oh God, it's going to be after positivity, four steps past the Helmuthian line. Right. Um, what's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? I don't know if there's a project that I'm working on. Like I said, I'm coaching my kids' hockey team, and that's right now. Um, that's near and dear to your heart. I love it. I know. I don't know if it's a project, so to speak, but um, it's. I, I mean, I love it. You know, I've got a co-coach that I work with, and we, you know, we develop practices, and we talk, and we work with these kids, and I kind of, I just love it. I mean, I, I, there's every aspect about it that I, I get on the ice with these kids, and you know, I get to work with them on, you know going from like young kids into like young boys and girls and become better people. And, um, and obviously and work on their games. I, I every part about it. I, I, I love it. Um, it's something that I, I don't, it's something that I want to do the rest of my life for sure. I just yeah. got back into it. I really just got back into it with my kid playing again and just realized how much I love it. Yeah. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. My kids don't care much for sports, two girls. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not jealous of the boys for 99%, but the one competitive aspect growing up an athlete and loving strategy and competition, I, I am a little sad that uh, not getting to coach, coach the kids. They have very limited interest in sports, sadly. Yeah, I, yeah. I, th- I don't know if I forced it on him or not, but now that he's getting better, he kind of likes it. I can say this. Nobody forced anything on me. Like I would be like, give me a tennis ball in the no backyard. Play. I'm throwing it against the, the wall, like all day long at six years old, like seven, like just all day long. Let's throw ball. Let's play. Let's find the neighborhood kids and play soccer, football, baseball, whatever it was. Um, just that's just how, how I am as a human. I like it. Um, all right, man. With that said, all about me, let's shut this down. And, uh, if the chasing poker greatness lister wants to learn more about you on the World Wide web, where should they go? Um, I guess you can go to my website, which is, uh, tuck on sports.com. There's, uh, there's some, some awful pictures in there. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram at tuck on sports. Um, you know, or just ask me or I can come back on the show or they can ask you. And then you can have you back on the show and you can ask me. Perfect. I, I that works too. I got my own questions. They can, they can ask you somewhere <laughs> else. I got, I got there my go. own. That goes, that <laughs> Hopefully works too. N- next time I'll have a full night's sleep and be, have uh, full access to all my cognitive faculties. But it, it's been great conversation, man. Really enjoyed having you on. And we'll run it back again sometime in the near future. And whenever I make it out to Vegas, if you're in Vegas, let's go uh, get a drink or something. I would, I would absolutely love that. And keep doing what you do, man. You're doing great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community. Book a coaching session or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.